I'm Elizabeth Chopin, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology UK. Welcome to the Design Dialogues. In this installment of our six-part podcast series focused on travel, I'm speaking to author and journalist Juliet Kinsman about sustainable travel and how our personal journeys can make a positive impact. Juliet was the founding editor of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, is currently the sustainability editor at Condé Nast Traveler, and she also founded Boutico, an online information source for travelers, as well as a consultancy advising hotel brands on how to operate more ethically. Juliet, a very warm welcome to you. I'm so pleased we could make this happen. I know you're in high demand. Oh, that's kind of you. I just wanted to start with a basic question. How do you define a sustainably minded traveler? You know, what should individuals be thinking about? And what are the questions we should ask ourselves when weighing up the carbon footprint of our trips? You know, language is a wonderful thing. I'm really glad that everyone is at least familiar with all the terms. The whole sustainability conversation feels a bit scripted. I don't know if you're noticing that. So I went to a talk last night and I felt like ChatGBT or AI could have written (laughs) what a lot of the panelists were saying. You know, it's all of the vernacular we expect. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who doesn't work in sustainability, they're not as enjoyable to hear. Bad actors, stakeholders, these are all, you know, the words we hear. I think we just have to use language with intention. And it has to feel human. We have to feel we've selected that word, knowing what it means, not just default to conscious travel, mindful traveller, responsible, which sounds a bit joyless. In terms of defining what a sustainably minded traveller is, it's simply someone who thinks about making choices or purchasing decisions that actively do good, whether that's for conservation and the environment or whether it's for community or it's helping put money in the pockets of those who actually need cash. So it's thinking logically about the words we use. Having said that, I also love really thinking more deeply about the definitions. I actually do a a podcast series called Funny Old World. And in the first episode, there's a great chat with George Monbiot, who says, you know, we can't be saying climate change. That's far too mild. We do need to be saying climate crisis or climate emergency. But you need to use words that feel right for you. Yes, that makes sense. And it makes sense to think about things from a common sense point of view. But I wonder how you weigh up the idealist part of it with the realism of travel and say flight shaming. You know, I've heard you speak about flight shaming before, and I think it's important to talk about this because there's a lot of positive aspects of travel. And for some travel, there's no getting around taking a flight unless you have unlimited amounts of time. So how do you weigh up the realities of life and the restrictions on people's lives and resources and time with this idea. Thank you. There's so much in there to actually sort of break down. Let's look at flight shaming. Let's look at international travel. How do we achieve that in a way that isn't doing terrible things? Well, if we're going to have a conversation about the climate emergency, because there is one, we need to decarbonize. We need to all work together to emit less greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which is warming it up. Flights, the contrails, the taking off and landing in particular, and those big, big planes, even when they're cruising through the sky, they are emitting planet warming gases. That's a fact. So how do we reconcile that? Really good question. We do need to fly less. 
So aviation only contributes to, well, I say only, around 4% of all global emissions. Construction, which is a sector which is particularly of interest to you, is nearer 40%. Agriculture, we all eat, we all drink. That is a hugely influential emitter. But the biggest contributor to our own footprints is always going to be getting on a plane. That is a fact. So how do we weigh up getting the most and benefiting from international travel with justifying those emissions? Well, we need to fly less. We need to change our habits. We need to think about how we do things. What are the barriers? As you said, time, also cost, actually. You know, we don't all have the flexibility to live a life that's a much more sustainable way of doing things. I think just think more deeply about the choices we make, not going back to our old sort of ways of just hopping on a plane. Obviously, the term jet setter, it used to be something that was glamorous. Mm -hmm. It's not as glamorous to me now. So definitely fly less. Think about why you're traveling. Think about where you're going. Think about, do you need to go there? Something I've really tried to do is limit all those short hops. Definitely traveling to Europe by train. What you started with your question, it's a brilliant one, is how are we being realists, but also being idealists? We have to think about what are our values as idealists and what is realistic and balancing that. And I think most of us, many of us do need to travel. Most of us do want to travel. But just thinking, where can we go in a way that it is actively doing good? Do we need to go on that quick weekend break to Barcelona? Could we do something within the country that we live in? Can we cluster lots of different work trips together? I just did. I did seven work trips in Europe over two and a half weeks of traveling by train. It wasn't easy. I was a bit exhausted. Sounds exhausting. (laughs) You know, and I'm a mum. It wasn't so easy to do. It required the, the father of my child to be really on board with that. Not everyone can do it. Not everyone, even digital nomads or freelancers, can justify spending all that time on a train. I personally, sitting at my laptop, my moving desk, it worked well. I bought an interrail train pass. I got first class. So I got great value. It's really easy to use the Rail Planner app. And so it worked for me. The point is, you need to stop, plan further in advance, and just think, how can I approach this differently to how I used to? And also, that sort of slots into this idea of slow travel that is also kind of a key term at the moment that I'm hearing a lot, different hotel groups sort of restoring trains and creating experiences that are about the journey and encouraging people to take the time to enjoy the journey and to not rush from place to place, but to kind of indulge in getting there, which is interesting. Yeah, thank you. I mean, for introducing this whole idea of slowing down, because I think instant gratification and the demand for everything we want immediately, it plays into the whole consumerism problem that got us into this mess. So slowing down is a good thing. It's also better for us. You've mentioned hotel groups. I think we all know Belmont has done these beautiful sort of design trains, but that's beyond the financial grasp of many people. In terms of slowing down, again, as you said, you know, you summed it up, it's common sense logically. When I go to Europe, going to, in my case in London, going to St Pancras, hopping on the Eurostar, getting a train, it really feels pretty user-friendly. Rather than going to the airport, feels stressful. Being pulled up into the sky into an aluminium tube, which isn't as good, by the way, for our circadian rhythms. I don't know. I'm no scientist or biologist or doctor, (laughs) but I just think staying quite literally grounded, it's got to be better for you. Thinking about slowing down in that way and just being more mindful. I mean, I said, use these words with intention and I'm using that word with intention, really thinking, where do I need to be? How long do I need to be there? 
I work with people on different projects and I've watched them really sort of adjust their work trips. If they're going somewhere, can they spend time with family? Is it an opportunity to combine some sort of holiday? You know, I don't want to use the word pleasure or workation, but I'm going to have to, buzzwords. <laughs> but, you know, it's just thinking differently and, and combining more, making it more nutritious. Is that a way of describing it? I think one thing that you mentioned about firms like Belmond, you know, restoring trains, I think that's also interesting in the sense of the design of those trains and making experiences attractive because of the design. I wanted to talk to you about some of the work you do with Boutico and hotels and how you consult those hotels on how to operate more ethically and how to create an experience that people want to buy into, basically. So Boutico, yes, my consultancy. I uh, started working on sustainability projects exclusively back in 2015 was when I made the sort of transition. And I created this boutique eco idea to spotlight the hotels, the boutique eco hotels that were doing good, but also exactly as you say, to work with them on communicating what they do that's having a positive effect in a way that swerved greenwashing, because that's really important, but also in a way that actually helped people better understand all the aspects of sustainability. Storytelling, as we know, is so powerful. You mentioned Belmond and the train. I know they had one in Peru, South America's first luxury train. What's wonderful about these developments is that it makes it aspirational to travel differently. Again, offsetting that jet-setting culture of the past. I work with a lot of very high-end luxury hotel groups who, on the outside, I mean, they'd look anything but eco, of course, by definition. We think it needs to be operating a very lean, low-impact business. But if a very sort of typically indulgent or spoiling travel experience can do things in a way that helps its guests, and these are typically people with a lot of money, so very high carbon footprint lifestyles, be more aware of their environments and the people around them and connect with them in a more meaningful way. I'm I'm actually going to use Belmont and full disclosure, I did do a workshop with them recently. So let's say Castello di Casole in Tuscany, beautiful luxury property. When you actually look at what they do as a hotel, most of their employees are from the immediate local community. Why is that so important? Lots of different reasons. I posed that question to one of the team and, you know, they sort of not blanked for a moment. But when you think, why is it important that a hotel employs locally? I mean, you might think, oh, you know, it gives greater guest experience. It's more authentic. It represents a sense of place. But what it also does is it sort of enriches the community through local employment. What it also does in the particular case of somewhere like Tuscany, it might help people who work in agriculture. By extension, you know, the wider family be able to stay there if they have members of the family working in a local luxury hotel, which means more people stay in that community in a rural area rather than going to work in cities. So if we look at the sort of micro and the macro, you know, the urbanification of the world, people going to live in cities is a challenge, actually. So if we can do more for local communities to help people stay where they live and love where they live, and have more money to look after the environment there, that's a wonderful thing. Definitely. And if you were someone who wants to travel more consciously and wants to do their due diligence before spending money with a certain hotel, what do you recommend? I mean, it seems like some of the rating systems we have are not fit for purpose if you're thinking in that way. In the past, I've heard you speak about Weva, but how do you look into it in a way where you know that your money is going into the local economy in a positive way. Is there a way to find these things out? Because it can feel impenetrable 
if there's not a really quick, obvious way to do it? Such a great question. I wish we had one universal stamp that we all understood meant this business is a good business for people and planet. (laughs) However, there isn't that existing. You need to invent it, Julia. (laughs) Well, I did work with a team behind Weaver, which is a sustainability management system, which converted the long run, which is a conservation-led membership organization for lodges particularly. And we converted their Four Seas framework into this platform, which helps a hotel measure its sustainability and impact from environmental considerations, so conservation, through to culture and community, which are often neglected in the metrics as well as commerce, which is ensuring that that business is running in a healthy way that doesn't rely on philanthropy, is making sure that everybody is paid properly, and again, leaving money in local communities. So it's all of those considerations. But how do people, you know, if they listen to this conversation and think, I want to book somewhere that is, let's use the word sustainable, how do I know it's good? It's hard. There are lots of accreditations out there. My friend Xenia from Considerate, I think she told me there are about 800 just in the travel sector alone. A good way of working out whether certification has a lot of credibility. Has a business paid for that certification out of their PR and marketing budget? Mm -hmm. Or is it something that facilitates their operations to be, well, more efficient and operate in a way that's doing less damage to to the environment? And as a customer, how do you spot greenwashing? I know this is a huge problem. Moving away from the certification and businesses that clearly know that they have something legit to highlight. When you find yourself at a hotel, for example, that are making a lot of claims about sustainability, how do you spot the greenwashing and how do you spot it before you go? Can I throw that question back at you? Because I'm curious, how do you spot greenwashing? Oh gosh. Well, I mean, I suppose it's something that you can also sense if you are in a place that doesn't feel thoughtful and considered. I think that there are a lot of subconscious spidey feelings for me about it. And that is really all I can say is it's an intuitive thing. I think that's really important. And I think it's not actually that mysterious. Your intuition will be, it will still be guided by some things that I'll say. You know when language is soft, you know when it's woolly, you know when they're saying we really care about people and planet, but they don't qualify that. Mm -hmm. You are standing, let's say in a big high street store and it's been around forever. And you know that the owners are some of the richest people in the whole world. So when they have a conscious collection of clothes, you say spidey feelings, but I'd say that it's your rational mind is telling you, Mm -hmm. you know, these people are not in business to do good. They're in business to make money, maximize profit. I think the reason I ask that is because, and not necessarily with hotels, but with other brands and businesses too, there have been times when I thought, oh, this sounds legit to me, or that's a really good thing. I'm glad that they do that. Then realize later, oh, actually, that's not what I thought it was. Or there's an article lambasting that brand for greenwashing. When I talk about intuition, I'm talking about when I'm actually there in the place and and you can see the way things are made and you can see the way people that work there are interacting and you can sort of sense a philosophy. And I think that's when I get that sense intuitively. But especially online when I'm buying products and claims are being made, and also I'm a real sucker for branding. I guess it's becoming aware of that. We are all a sucker for branding. You know, that's how the system operates. Things are advancing. There's a lot of next level, next generation greenwash out there now. A business has to communicate to you exactly why they're solving, perhaps it's a a local environmental or economic challenge with their business. How is their business presenting a solution to a problem, right? 
So generally, that tends to be more purpose-led, independent brands. We've got so many brands now are B Corps, which is great. It shows they're committed to measuring every aspect of their business's impact. But again, B Corp is a paid-for label. It might be born from their marketing department's ambitions. True. I mean, I do think, though, it shows an understanding that there is a business case for being more sustainable in the sense that a lot of people will make decisions about hotels they're staying in or trips they're taking or whatever it is. And they want to feel enlightened. They want to feel like they're spending their money in a way that helps and doesn't hinder. I think businesses and hotels are seeing that actually this makes sense commercially to not just show that they're making efforts to operate more ethically, but that they actually are. Yes, I have lots of conversations with brands, particularly luxury brands, about articulating what it is they're doing. But through that conversation of articulating it, we look at actually what they're doing. So right now I would be talking to brands, particularly about water. Water is going to be, or water scarcity, water crisis is going to be how most people in this 8 billion populated planet of ours are going to first experience the climate emergency. So when I talk to them about what they're doing around water conservation, I'm also pushing them to think more deeply about how they can innovate and create water saving solutions. So I think, again, that's something really important in terms of our values. Do we want to support a business that cares about a cause close to our heart. So mine would be water conservation. That means I'm not very likely to want to go and stay on a hotel on a golf course, for example. But in terms of spending more thoughtfully, I think we all know, and particularly in the design community, it's nothing new to you. Buy less, buy better. For me, sustainability means quality. For me, luxury means quality. And all of those are synonymous. Mm -hmm. So it's investing in beautifully made from special materials rather than lots of stuff. It's, it's just, just changing our consumer habits. And we have to be careful when we have this conversation, not to sound too elitist and exclusive, because, you know, lots of people who perhaps they're from lower income situations, they don't have the privilege of being able to make these choices. Mm-hmm. They want to buy what's cheap, what enhances their life there and then. This is us as individuals, as consumers, right, talking now. But ultimately, a lot of the responsibility, as we know, lies in the hands of the government and the manufacturers. But what about the hotel operators themselves? You've mentioned water conservation, but what other ways are you, in your work with Patico, encouraging hotels to do better? Hospitality is a wonderful context to do good. One in 10 people globally is employed in tourism. So that's an important statistic to remember. Hospitality itself, when you look at it as a sector, I mean, it's very arcane when it comes down to who owns the actual hotels, who manages the hotels, what are their main goals? Well, generally, these are profit-led businesses. But because you're working in a business with people that's employing people, it's not just about the hardware. Mm -hmm. It's not just about the real estate. There's a great opportunity to do a lot of good there in terms of well, socioeconomic impact in local communities, as I say. There's a great opportunity for wealth distribution, destinations where people need it. I think gender is a big consideration in hospitality. I think we forget how much of the world actually that gender equality isn't in play. And I think hospitality has a great opportunity to employ more women, perhaps in cultures and countries where typically women don't work or aren't educated to the same level as men. So that, I mean, there's lots of different ways. Are these some of the areas that you're touching on it through your work? You know, it, it extends this far. 
So let me give you a good example. Actually, through Boutique, I made a documentary called Changing Worlds in the Atlas Mountains. And that was inspired by a lodge in the Atlas Mountains run by the Berber people, where we observed lots of the girls weren't being able to go to school. Simple geography was the barrier. You know, girls would have to walk to school two hours a day. Mm -hmm. Culturally, it was a priority to send the boys. But Kasbah de Tubkal there, they set up a charity called Education for All. And we made a documentary around this because we wanted to communicate actually the connection between the education of girls in remote rural areas and climate. And that Mm -hmm. is if girls go to school for longer, they get married later, they have fewer healthier children, which deals with population growth. It also means that they're better equipped to contribute to the economy. They are also in stronger position to deal with extreme weather, which I'm afraid to say is facing much of the world already. And this was a lot funded by hospitality. So it's showing that connection between all of these initiatives and how powerful spending money on good businesses can be when it leads to that. Now we'll hear a short message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Aaron Rana, interior designer at Accor. Sustainability impacts everything today from how we travel to how we stay, but also how we design hotels, experiences, and everything in between. This is why it's integrated in every part of the Accor business with clear, measurable objectives and involvement from all Accor departments, partners, and hotel owners. Sustainability is a key part of the hotel brands. In 2019, Accor launched the budget hotel brand Greet, which is all about circular hospitality. We design responsibly with consideration for the entire life cycle of the product, which is a mix of secondhand furniture, sustainable materials, and repurposed objects. Each Greet is individual and is built with a reduce, reuse, and recycle philosophy, even through to the guest experience. For example, the new Greet in Vienna has a second chance boutique for guests to discover recycled, upcycled and repurposed items that ordinarily would have gone to landfill. I want to segue back to design and how that factors in and what good design in hotels means beyond aesthetics. I mean, you touched on it briefly with materials. You know, when you're speaking to hotels and how they're briefing interior designers and architects, how do you design spaces that encourage sustainable behaviors as well as use sustainable materials and practices? So that's such an important question. As we know, good design is essentially problem solving. So good design of a hotel, of a building, should be problem solving when it comes to the climate also, considering all those factors. You have new builds, which is one conversation in itself. How can they innovate? How can they create a new way of approaching construction that minimizes the amount of energy used? How can they use less water or recycle water? All of the touch points in the climate conversation, there's a new build. And then there's the repurposing or reconditioning existing buildings, which is really, really important and much harder, I imagine, and much more challenging to developers. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the design, when I work with hotels, often there's a disconnect actually between the real estate owner, the property developer, let's say, the management company. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a big disconnect and I want them all to have a better understanding of sustainability so they can talk to each other. So if they're doing something really, really clever, they can articulate that to their investors, their stakeholders and the consumers. And that raises all of our awareness. I'll give you a good example. I met with Crosstree, who is a property developer 
who is working with One Hotels to launch One Mayfair in 2023, which is exciting. Now, when I actually dug into it all, Crosstree's doing some great things. And actually how they're approaching refurbishing an existing building, they educated me around how they were looking at, I think it was to do with the floor tiles, but the way they'd repurposed a lot of the existing structure was really quite clever. So it was efficient. It wasn't cheaper because it was quite fiddly, if I understand. But the fact they'd gone to that trouble, they need to then communicate that story to open source it to other developers, inspire them. Yeah. They worked with a landscape gardener who I then, when I spoke to the landscape gardener, had incredible ideas to bring back lots of native species and create this green wall, which is quite unique to London. And it will allow a sort of biodiversity and a habitat for a wider range of birds and insects. Mm -hmm. Again, how much do we hear hotels really articulating these details, let alone property developers? We don't. And that's where storytellers like us come in Mm -hmm. to really help amplify all of these details in the climate conversation. Are there any other hotel groups that you can big up for doing good work in this area? So we don't necessarily want to name and shame, but the ones that are doing things right. So you said hotel groups, which is interesting. Something I will just... Or hotels. Yeah. Hotel groups, something very interesting at the moment. I've been to a lot of trade shows recently and conferences, and the overriding message is destinations are doing a very poor job of measuring and communicating sustainability. SMEs, which as we know, make up about 80% of all businesses, are also not doing a great job. I think about 12% of SMEs are measuring their ESG, their environmental social governance and reporting on that, only 12%. The big hotel groups, so you asked me, they're all doing a pretty good job. They've all woken up to it. I spoke to Mandarin Oriental today. They've now got three people employed in their hotel group dedicated to sustainability. That's a hotel group for just 36 hotels. I mean, that's a a big advance over Mm -hmm. a few years ago. So any hotel group that's got a full-time dedicated sustainability officer is doing a good job. So that's lots of them. For me, I always like to shout about the independence because it's much harder for, let's say, a family-run tiny hotel to do good. Sure. It's much more challenging. Yeah. So let's really give props to those. And they're not always obvious eco stories. Look at Rescio in Tuscany, mm. the way Count Benedict, he's an architect actually, mm-hmm. just they've revived that estate, the way they've looked at their landscaping, the way they've breathed new life into an existing building. It's really very interesting, but they're not going to win the big headlines because they don't have the scale. The reason they win the big headlines is because they have given equal attention to the experience and the aesthetics. And it is aspirational to go there. As you say, it's not accessible to everyone, but it is very special. I think that's something that is not to be sniffed at, that beauty and aesthetics and design are really important as far as a draw for people. It does have to go hand in hand with these other things. But it is quite important, isn't it, to be alluring, to get people there. Yes. I mean, I was just a judge in the, in the most sustainable hotel in the UK and Ireland. And lots of them had really, really strong applications. But you've just raised a really key point. We ultimately also have to judge it on what is a great hotel. What demonstrates, how does it make you feel? Going back to what you said, how does it make you feel? So a really, really important hotel group is the Pig Hotels run by Robin Hudson. The Pig Hotels is a small group that really popularized and raised awareness around low food mile menus, right? Yeah. So that's an amazing thing they did. Mm -hmm. They're one of the first country hotels to have a kitchen garden and really make us think about provenance of ingredients. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to doff our cap to them. Their core values 
are around eating locally, raising awareness about the connection between soil and what's on our plate. So mm-hmm. that's important. And they also breathe new life into these existing buildings. So what they did with the first one in the new forest. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah it was really, really great. And they've gone on to find other very interesting properties mm-hmm. um, and do the same. And so I think as a model, it's pretty healthy. They also had something called Burt's Boxes, which is a very interesting collaboration with Burt and May tiles. Do you remember them? Yeah. Do you know them? I love them. Yeah, yeah. So I do too. again, it's raising awareness about upcycling. So anything where you're taking a sort of focus of sustainability mm-hmm. and making your customers think more deeply about that, then that's a good thing. Yeah. I think the pig is also interesting because they really engage with communities and programming and wellness, you know, was a big part of it, but in a low key way. So moving away from that really exclusive wellness offer and just trying to present it as part of good health. A big percentage of their staff is hired locally, and that is absolutely key in the sustainability conversation. In terms of guest experience, I think if you have a lot of the team there from the local community, there's more integrity. It just feels more authentic. There are lots of different hotels we looked at in the UK. I will say what was noticeable is there are less than you think that would be really, really sustainable. Hmm. And I think it's hard for a lot of pre-existing buildings to reinvent themselves. So you might have Watley Manor. Sue Williams there does an incredible job when it comes to sustainability. You've got Le Manoir in Oxfordshire. Mm -hmm. They do fantastic things around zero waste. Raymond Blanc, the chef proprietor, he's always done, you know, had really great kitchen practices, which is sustainability. The gardens are amazing there. Yes. With the heritage varieties. Again, it's the storytelling around that as well. And who were some of the others on the short list? Another hotel really worth celebrating would be the Bull Inn in Totnes, which is, do you know of it? Yeah, I went there in October. It was fabulous. From the moment you stepped through the door, I was just enchanted with it. The building itself is very special, obviously. So it's an original historic inn, very listed as in protected on the corner of Totnes, which is one of the most sort of sustainable towns in our land. Yes, that was my first visit there. And I was taken aback by it as a place because it's so different than so many other little market towns that I've been to. It was over the course of that long weekend that I learned the history of that town and why it is the way it is and the independent businesses that are up and down that little high street and how special it is actually. But the bull in itself, the room is so beautifully decorated, but not ostentatious in any way. And I think that they were really good at telling their stories about the way that they were thinking about their business, about their menus and the wine lists, and everything just seemed very thoughtful. And when I talk about an intuitive feeling that a business is actually putting their money where their mouth is and following through, I could feel that from the moment I stepped into that place. So the Bullion, it was created by Geeti Singh Watson, so it absolutely exemplifies um, an independent business trying to do the right thing, as you say. They're mm-hmm. totally transparent. They even have their noble rules on a chalkboard in the restaurant, which explains all of their philosophy and ethos and why they're ethical, which I think is wonderful. So exactly that, it communicates it. It's also, well, I guess you'd call it rough lux. They've taken quite, it's quite a basic room offering. So there's a beautiful Mm -hmm. bed by Natural Mat, they're based down the road. So the actual bed itself is a really good eco-friendly brand, important, Mm -hmm. but they've paired it back. They've not tried to wow you with lots of amenities or any of those luxuries that some people interpret as being a marker of good hospitality. They've looked at the basics. Mm -hmm. Now, the challenge with this particular property, and I love it, I love what they do through the food and drink, 
through the upcycle design, making the most of this building without it being flashy or fancy. The challenge, of course, is it's a a listed building and so they're not able to insulate. Now, the big conversation Ah. in sustainability, yes, that's the challenge and that's a barrier and that's not their fault. It's as sustainable as a business could be in those conditions. But the problem for the UK, certainly, Mm. is that, you know, 20% of domestic emissions in the UK come from the heating and cooling of buildings. We need to insulate better. That's why we had people called Insulate Britain throwing themselves as a nuisance on motorways, however you feel about that. I saw a report very recently that the UK is absolutely not hitting those targets. We need to do better at insulating domestic and commercial properties in the UK. So that's an interesting piece. But as a business, the Bullion is absolutely one of my favourites in the country. I would encourage everyone, if they're in Devon, to at least stop there for dinner or lunch. Yeah, it's really special. It's so special. It's funny because, and the name is escaping me now of this inn, but it's the same idea. It's in Tisbury. Do you know the one I'm thinking of? Beckford Arms? Yeah. Yeah, Beckford Arms, that's it. I remember going there as far back as 2011, and it was that same idea. It was the first time that I had been to a building that had been renovated in that way and paired back in terms of design to the basics, but using really high-quality bedding and furniture and a laid-back atmosphere, but really quality. And then it was all about the food. Again, that's a great, passionate hotelier, excellent hotelier owner, Charlie Luxton, I know. I mean, I really love that. In my previous life, because actually I was founding editor of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, so I spent 15 years visiting those kind of romantic, stylish, uh, small hotels, such as that was a poster Smith Hotel, the Beckford Arms. Mm -hmm. Charlie is great, and he really cares. Whilst he might have not called it sustainability, he ran a good business with good ethics, you know, Mm -hmm. exactly as you say. Some of the best, most considerate businesses don't necessarily fly the flag so obviously for sustainability. No. My impression of that place and also of the Bullen in some ways is that it creates almost the fantasy of what I want a country in to be, but that so many aren't. So many are not comfortable or things don't feel good or it seems like there's a holistic approach to everything there. And it's all about how things smell and how things feel when you touch them and the whole experience, which I think is a huge part of the draw. Absolutely. I think it's small scale as well, you know. Yeah. It just feels that they are true to their community probably and they try and and fit in and work within the local area. And I think small scale is to be celebrated, actually, because there are lots of very fancy, very beautiful hotels who have owners who've made lots of money, let's say pharmaceuticals, and so have very deep pockets. Mm -hmm. But we also have to salute the independent ones where the owners are through and through hoteliers. Yeah, well, it seems like it's about passion there. Totally. I mean, there's somewhere I really want to visit is Keythorpe Hall in Leicestershire. I think it's running as a private sort of exclusive use property at the moment, but I know Mm -hmm. that's run by a husband and wife, Giles and Barbara. It only opened a year ago. One of their stories is around growing their own flowers. So Mm -hmm. I love it when a hotel takes one particular aspect and shines a light on that. Because often we don't think, you know, think of all that imported growing flowers compared with Heckfield Place as another property where they grow their own flowers. It's a great aspect of being more considerate. Definitely. Okay, I have two more questions for you. One is going back for a second. It's looking to the future, but it's going back away from the independents and more to the hotel groups. There's a lot of talk about this idea of hyper-personalization and in-room experiences and smart hotels, and that that's the future of hotels. And I wonder how this 
tallies with what you do with Botico and sustainability practices and circular design and is this something you're talking about with them? Is it actually the future? So lots of people talk about the future of hospitality being all about personalization. For me, that's really about data capture and it's about customer profiling. Mm. So I would urge all hotel groups to really try and capture information about their customers when it comes to sustainability. Are they happy to waive housekeeping? Are they happy to not have every conceivable amenity thrown out for them? They just need the basics. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you can personalize a stay. When I stayed at Alila once, I remember they said, "Do you?" I can't remember how they call, what they called it, but it was, do you want light, medium, or <laughs> intense? They did not call it that, but service. So do you want someone there fussing around you all the time, or do you want them a bit hands-off? And I would love that same approach to sustainability. And I think hotel groups are thinking about that. Yeah, This is where I said it's difficult because in sustainability, we have certain perception of what an eco hotel looks like from the outside, but actually internally, the way they run their businesses might chime with a lot of the pillars of sustainability. We just wouldn't know that. So obviously, yeah. so any of the groups that are really, really thinking about how they can change their practices and not, they haven't gone back to business as usual post COVID. They're not anyone who's removing single use plastic, absolutely every aspect of it from their business definitely deserves saluting. You know, we have these big, big groups, Accor, which has within it so many sub-brands. So you might have a sub-brand such as, well, we know Ennis Moore and we've got the Hoxton, mm-hmm. who would never, ever, ever put their head above the parapet and call themselves eco, but they're definitely modifying the way they run their businesses to be more considerate and more sensitive, pairing things back, sharing uh, bits of information about what they're doing, maybe setting even just the default temperature setting of a room in winter to be a little bit cooler or in summer to be a little bit warmer, i.e. not putting the central heating up high or the air conditioning up high. So those small modifications as a group can make a really big difference, but it's really important to educate the customer around that. I'm so glad you had something positive to say about Accor because they're our sponsor. Oh, hello, Accor. Thank you, Accor. Well, they're huge. I mean, you know, they can do things at scale. So yes, I mean, the great thing about a company like Accor, which is huge and has so many different sub-hotel brands or hotel brands within it. I mean, I think they've got more than 5,000 hotels. The thing is, when they appoint someone as chief sustainability officer to lead all of that, they have great potential to scale change. And so whilst they might not represent or promote all of their individual hotels as sustainable, they have a lot of internal learnings that is incredibly powerful. Think if one hotel decided to switch to cage-free eggs compared to a whole group of hotels, that's a big change, right? That's what Hilton did, for example, in America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if Accor said, right, we are going to eliminate all single-use plastic bottles, and they did that across all their hotels at scale, that's a lot of bottles that end up not going to landfills. Last question. What is your most profound travel memory ever? So you're asking me this question off the top of my head. What's my most profound travel memory? I'm going to answer that without really thinking about it because I think that's the honest reflection, right? Mm -hmm. I can tell you it actually. I get goosebumps or chicken skin as they say in Spanish. Oh yes, let's hear it. So it's just a very small, small moment and it might not seem significant. I am in Sri Lanka and by Lake Kogala. The wonderful guy, he runs the boat between one hotel and the other side of the lake. He took me to meet his mum. She was a tea picker and we were standing on a very sharp incline of tea. It was a Sunday. I remember that. And we didn't speak the same language. She was smiling. She was very elderly, actually. And she reached across the tea and she just took my hand. Honestly, I put tears in my eyes thinking about it. And it was that moment of human connection where she was obviously proud that her son had brought a visitor to the hotel to meet her. 
she was so happy and it was humbling because it's not that easy a job. It was very hot that day. And it was very, very humbling about the sort of reminding us of the many people that we don't usually meet or see who are touched by hospitality. Mm -hmm. And Bernard took me then to his home to have some tea with his wife. And so it wasn't the architect designed beautiful hotel that really stayed with me. It was that person who was part of their ecosystem. And the hotel was Tree, spelled T-R-I, Tree. Okay. And that was one of my moments where I thought it's really about meeting the people. It's connecting with lives different to our own. How wonderful. And that helps you then start to care about... To care, empathy, compassion. And I think, you know, I met a travel designer from New Jersey. I did a big keynote at a conference last year. I talked about how a third of Pakistan, the fifth most populous country in the world or, or, or thereabouts, was underwater. He came up to me holding a cigar and he said, but you know, I don't buy all that sustainability stuff, he said to me. Oh dear. My friend, I could see her wince in her eyes. She thought, oh no, Juliet's going to kick off. I didn't at all. I lean into a conversation. I said, oh, that's interesting. And I said, why is that? He said, I just don't relate to them. So that is why we have to travel internationally. That is why we have to connect with people whose lives are different to our own. And I will make the point in the observation, in particular, to use the term Global North, we do need to connect with those in the Global South. And as a white woman living in London, it is really important to care about those who are on the front line of the climate emergency, who are predominantly people of colour, because I think history will look back on this situation and those of us who have high carbon lifestyles, who are white, who did nothing to help those in the global south, who are predominantly of colour, will be remembered in a very similar way to those who profited from slavery. And that's hard hitting. That's how I feel. And I believe that is how history will look at us. Thank you so much for talking to me about this. It's been such a pleasure and I've definitely learned a lot and I know that our listeners will have too. Thank you so much for having me. I love celebrating the good guys out there. There's so much positivity. There's so many innovations. It's great. But I also think, as you'll know from my last point, we do need to have a few more uncomfortable conversations too in amongst it and balance the realism with the idealism. Yes. Thank you so much. This series is produced in partnership with hospitality group Accor. Please tune in next Friday when we'll explore urbanism and hotel design and how the Hoxton has paved the way. Thanks for listening.